We're going to share a thought today calling Wake Up. And I thought I was going to say that really, you know, dramatic, but I don't know that I want to do that. <laughs> wake Up, all right? So this is Ephesians 2, Rise Up from the Dead. And so we sang that song this morning, right? And I love when songs, well, we try to sing songs that just are truth, right? But I love when Christian writers just take the Bible and they just write melodies to it. Because then you're sewing up things that you can use later. It's not, oh, is this true? Is this not true? Uh, do I need to keep the, the prayer wheel turning? Is that true? Like, or do I need to know that God will rise me or raise me up from the dead? Is that true? And so just hanging on to things that are true is very important. And a good reminder of that is that last song we sang today was I Need Thee. And so here today, Ephesians 2, we're going to be in those first 10 verses. We'll actually be a little beyond and a little before those as well, but that will be our key text as we make our way through uh, this thought today we're calling Wake Up. So as we begin, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever heard the expression, dead to the world? So when somebody is dead to the world, what are we saying about that person? They're sound asleep, right? So you could be in the kitchen... You know, just making all sorts of racket with pots and pans, or you can be running a vacuum, or you can live on a busy road like we do and hear cars and fire trucks running by, and it never bother you. You know, I can remember when our girls were young babies, and Stephanie would ask me, did you not hear them last night? They cried from crying, and I had to get up five times, and no, I didn't hear a thing. That didn't use it good well, but I did have a good night's sleep, right? I was dead to the world. So when you're dead to the world, but you need to be awakened, what do you need? A wife. A wife. That's right. You need somebody outside of you, right, to get your attention. Because I'm dead to the world. I can't wake myself up, and so I am just, I'm out. And I need somebody to come in and either shake me, or I need a loud alarm clock, Something that's just going to get my attention. What my dad used to do, and uh, he'll still do this on occasion, just because he thinks it's funny. When we were kids growing up, if we wouldn't get up when we were supposed to, usually this was Sunday morning, because dad was always gone early throughout the week, he'd come in our room and start singing Itsy Bitsy Spider to us. But he didn't just sing it to us, he'd start out on your feet. And he'd the itsy bitsy spider. And he'd work his way up to your knees and up your legs and up your back. And so you're just sitting there with covers pulled over and you're growling underneath the sheets. And you're just, go away, go away. And before you know it, mean, he's just laying all over you and just tickling you like crazy. And so you got to get up then, right? I mean, you're wide awake. All your covers are on the floor. And if I didn't get up, then the spider gets bigger. More aggressive spider. So... But when you're dead to the world, you need somebody or something outside of you that can come alongside of you and wake you up. Right? I need that. We need something that's going to maybe turn the light on and lighten the room so that we'll begin to see that, hey, it's time for us to wake up. Now, most people don't like it when you turn the lights on. Anybody do that when you first wake up? First thing you do is just flip the light switch on and it's bright. All right, some of you do. I like it dark. I want my eyes to have a little bit of time to adjust, but to become awake, we need the light. And so we're going to relate this today then to raising up or waking up from the dead, spiritually speaking. And a word you'll probably hear me say a few times is spiritual zombies. Spiritual zombies. So 
Let's go ahead and define that. Everyone is alive physically, but not everyone is alive spiritually. And so there are people who are walking throughout this earth kind of like a spiritual zombie. They're dead even though they are physically living. Does that make sense? So what we're looking at is what's it mean to be dead in sin? What's it mean to be dead to sin? And what's it mean to really live as someone who's been made alive in Jesus Christ? And so all of this you'll find in the first couple chapters of Ephesians 2. You'll find it other places in the Bible as well. But this is just uh, where we prayed through and felt like we wanted to start today. Uh, so let's read these 10 verses and you can follow along here as I read and let's just go ahead and set the context a little bit so Paul's writing to a group of people some of these are Jews and some of these are Gentiles and you can understand that through his letter Paul also writes about uh, what we believe in how God works in a person as far as salvation is concerned and so there are those who would use these texts to say that God has only chosen so many people and there's nothing you can do except all of a sudden walking down the sidewalk, bam, you're saved. They had absolutely nothing to do with you. You went from being a spiritual zombie to be spiritual alive and it had nothing to do with you. You didn't do a thing. Now it's true that we don't save ourselves, but what's equally true here within these two chapters is that there is a response that's required for salvation. And it's also outlined in the book of Romans, right? God sends people to preach, and the people preach so that people will hear. And so when people hear, they will believe, and upon believing, they'll call, and whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's the same concept here in Ephesians 2. Something else to keep in mind here. This is not a letter about a personal election, as some would say, that God chose to save you but not your husband. And there's nothing that your husband could ever do to be saved. It's just totally God's predetermined idea that you would go to heaven and he would go to hell and somehow he gets glory for that. That's not the, the theme of Ephesians. The real theme of Ephesians is how do Jews and Gentiles unite in one body? How do they become one in Christ? And so it's important to notice the pronouns you, we, us as we make our way through the text today. And I encourage you to go back and read that within that mindset. And we believe that God predetermined that anyone who hears his word and believes on him will be saved. And we believe that's true for anybody. Right? Uh, that's part of how we would understand God's predestination based on multiple scriptures and that's how we would understand what it means to be chosen or elected in God. And so within this, Paul's going to talk a few different ways about what it means to be alive. Okay? So let's go here. Verse 1 begins, as for you. As for you. And so this is a reference now to Gentiles. As for you. And so the previous verses talk about us. The first us would have been the first believers, which would have been the Jews, who the gospel came to first. And then he's moving on. As for you, you Gentile, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of who? All of us. And so now we're included again with the apostles and the Jews, so it's kind of everybody. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved, and that's through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now we're going to end up linking verse 10 back to verses 17, 18, and 19 in chapter 1, Paul's prayer, uh, as those two work together to help us know how to live out what we should do, and so then that we'll be, uh, have specific uh, drive or passion or feelings that come alongside that as well. So a few things as we make our way through the text here today, through this idea of being made alive spiritually speaking. So everybody starts out as a spiritual zombie. Uh, they're dead men walking, right? It says to be spiritually alive, the first thing we're going to say is that everybody at some point in their life is a dead man walking. And Paul was writing initially to remind them of where they had come from and what it's still like for many people who walk the planet. They were alive physically, but they were not alive spiritually. And the result is that they live like it. And so let's go back and look at what it, what's it look like to be somebody that's a spiritual zombie. Well, as for you, you were, what's that word? As for you, you were dead. And what were you dead in? You were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And listen, there's three different things that Paul's going to outline as far as following. So when you follow these things, these are indicators that you are a spiritual zombie. When you followed the ways of the world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So all of us at some point in our life have been dead men walking. We've all been spiritual zombies. So how do we identify, or what are the three indicators that Paul outlines of spiritual zombiness, or of being a spiritual zombie? Well, here's the three. One is this. If we are following the pattern and thinking and ways of the world, you know what, Jeff Foxworthy? You know he says you might be a redneck if? That's kind of what this is. You might be a spiritual zombie if. If you follow the teachings and pattern of lifestyle of the world, you might be a spiritual zombie. All right? It could very well be that way. And so what are some of the ways and patterns of the world? If we think that uh, two people of the same gender mean honors God, then we may be a spiritual zombie. We are following the thinking and the pattern and the teaching of the ways of the world. Right? Uh, if we think that uh, taking the life of an unborn child or even taking the life of a born child, uh, it's hard to believe, but that's on the table for many states right now. The child is born and set on a table and doctor and mother talk, do you really want this child? How that's even an option, I have no idea. But 
if we would go along with that and say, hey, God, I think that's a good idea, we could be a spiritual zombie because we're following the pattern and the teaching and the ways of the world. And so Paul's outlining how all of us at one time used to walk in these ways. Now, maybe you would say, even if I wasn't a believer, I wouldn't believe those things to be true. Well, that, that may be true, but there would be other ways as well that we could be identified as following the patterns of the world. Another way he says is that you might be a spiritual zombie if you follow the leading of your adversary. And so one of the ways I know that I'm following the lead of my adversary is, am I living in ways purposefully, intentionally, that cause me to be disobedient to God? Right? Following Satan does not bring honor to God. Following Satan doesn't please God. Those are two totally different things. And so if I'm living willfully in disobedience, consistently, intentionally, then it could be that I'm a spiritual zombie. What that means is that I'm dead, spiritually speaking. Right? Lots of people know things to be true, but they still could be dead, spiritually speaking. And the third thing he says is we might be a spiritual zombie if we follow our own desires and thoughts by pursuing the cravings of our flesh. And so there you've got really the three things that work against us. We've got the world and its pattern of teaching and its ways. We've got our enemy, the adversary, who is the devil or Satan. And then we've got, who's number three? It's us, our own desires, our own passions. You know, James writes in his letter and says, listen, we give the devil way too much credit. Sometimes we say, the devil made me do it. Most of the time I'm enticed and drawn away by my own evil passions and desires. Right? So I'm often my own worst enemy. And so here Paul says, listen, these could be the three ways of identifying people who are dead or not alive as uh, Christians, they're, they're spiritually dead. Well, what's the result? If I am a spiritual zombie, what's the result? Well, in verse 4 it said this, We are deserving of God's wrath. We are deserving of God's wrath. And so what that means is, because I'm spiritually dead, I'm still separated from God, I'm participating in these things, and they are identifiers and indicators that there is a deadness within me. Now, if I sin, does that make me spiritually dead? No. We're not going to get it right any day. Perfectly. And so there's going to be days where we miss it. There's going to be days where our passion is lacking or where we are selfish or where we're lazy or where we're pursuing the unimportant or the temporary or we get short-sighted and we're not living in light of the eternal. So we're not going to get it right every day. Paul's not saying when you sin, you become spiritually dead. What he's saying is, if this is, identifies you consistently, then you might want to take a closer look. Because those who are alive do not consistently live like those who are dead. All right? So the first thing to be alive spiritually signifies is that we have all at one point been dead men walking. So never forget that from once we've come, right? The grace that's been shown to us, which has brought us from dead to life, or death to life. And by the way, the Bible says this lots of different ways. Lots of different images that kind of say the same thing. So help me out. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. All right, so here it's I once was dead, but now I am alive. I once was sick, but now I'm healed, or I'm restored. And so we're saying different things really about the same thing. 
To be alive in Christ moves us from a, a spiritual blindness or deadness or lostness to a place of being found and walking in the light, able to see, and a place of being alive and made whole. So initially it signifies what Jesus has done in us. We've moved positions. We've changed teams. We're no longer dead, but now we walk as those who are alive. Secondly, then, here to be spiritually alive requires us to wake up. So how do I wake up? How do I move from a position of being a spiritual zombie to being alive in Jesus Christ? I have to wake up because I'm dead to the world. And I can't wake myself up. Remember, John wrote his gospel and said, this isn't about you making a decision. This isn't about a husband or a parent's will for their spouse or children. This is about the Spirit of God enabling a person to see who God is, to see themselves as sinful, and to see Jesus as a Savior. You might remember back in our solar series, we talked about that as the enabling grace. But in this analogy here of spiritual deadness, Paul likens being asleep to being spiritually dead and being spiritually alive to being awakened. And so to be alive is to be awakened. And the only way that happens is through God. So God sounds the alarm. God comes in our world and sees the itsy-bitsy spider. He comes along and he turns the light switch on. He says, I'm going to wake you up so that you see the, the, the error of your ways, that you see me as a perfect and holy God who loves you and has created you, so that you see my son Jesus as your sacrifice and your Savior. That's the wake-up call. That's the alarm. And he's willing to do that for every person who's ever been a dead man walking. And so let's go back and read it here in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. Why are we awakened? We're all dead. And if God didn't love us, we'd have no hope. Right? We'd follow the pattern and teaching of this world. We'd follow the enemy who has been given the ability to rule this age. We'd follow our own selfish passions, craving, pursuing everything that's our own uh, just kind of pleasure, our own indulgence. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, what is he doing? He made us alive. In the context of our message today, what has God just done? He just woke me up. Right? He's moved me from death to life. He has just made me from dead to the world to be alive with Christ even when I was dead or we were dead in transgressions. Since by His grace you've been saved. And then God raised us. All right? He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved. What's the next phrase? Through faith. And this, the grace that saves you, is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. And so the modifier here is not through faith. The model, what's being modified is not through faith. What's being modified is God is the author of the grace that saves us. That is his gift. Not by works so that no one can boast. And so there are those who would say that believing is a work. That if, if we have anything to bring to salvation, that we are talking about a works-based salvation. Jesus talked about the same thing. So I don't have any problem saying that. You might remember he was asked, what 
what work should we do to be saved? And Jesus' response is, the work that my Father requests of you or asks of you is to believe. So believing is not a work. Through faith is the response of having the light turned on or us being awakened, shaken awake by God. At least it's one of the responses. I can respond through faith to believe in Jesus Christ or I can respond through faith to believe in the teachings and the world's ways, kind of the systems and patterns of ideas. I can receive or I can reject. I can have faith and receive Jesus as my Savior through God's grace, or I can reject and still be dead in my sins, a spiritual zombie walking through life, still lacking hope, love, grace, mercy, all the richness of God that is my direction, simply because I rejected him trying to waken me up. I would say there's probably been points in each of our lives where in some way, even as a believer, God tried to wake us up to something. To wake us up to our selfishness or to wake us up to some sin, to some maybe hidden secret or to wake us up to how we are rude or we're short or we're unkind, like we're just not living out the ways of God and he's trying to get our attention to live in ways that are different. And so the only way a person is made alive, brought awake, is through Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes later in the same letter, this is why it's said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. See, wherever there's an awakening through grace and there is faith, that person then becomes saved. And that's our story. If you're a believer today, that's how it's worked. So some pastor, you might pat him on the back and say, it was brother so-and-so that led me to Jesus. Well, he may have been the instrument God used, but the reason you received Jesus was because there was an illuminator who decided in that moment to open your eyes, to waken you up, to sound the alarm, and say, you're dead. And you're dead in your sin. And there's a God who loves you and gave his son for you. And if you believe in him, he will save you. That all glory then goes to whom? It goes to God because he's the author of the grace. He's the author of the salvation. He's the one who gives the gift so that no one can boast. Thankful for the people in our life that point us to Christ. Thankful to be a person who can help point others to Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's always the Spirit of God that's got to be at work enlightening, illuminating, drawing, enabling people to see their need of Jesus and to see Jesus as the great Savior. Where the gospel is heard and believed, there is an awakening. Uh, and so let's go back and see this again in chapter 1. This is the process that I alluded to earlier. This is similar to Romans 10. So in Ephesians 1, and you also. All right. So now we're talking about a different group of people. So up to this point, Paul had been talking about everybody kind of included, Jews, Gentiles, all believers there at Ephesus. God's inspired Paul to write this, preserve the word for you and I today, but now he's going to speak specifically to the Gentiles who are believers there. He's reminding them of how they became part of God's family. He's reminding them that he had always been in the mind of God to save anyone who would believe. That had always been the predetermined plan of God. So and you also were included in Christ. Gentiles. He's just addressed the Jews. When you heard the message of truth. Right? So it starts by hearing. And upon hearing, we need to 
believe or believe the gospel message. And so when you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so what is the, what is the, the how, how does that proceed there? They heard the gospel message. Upon hearing, they believed. Upon believing, they called. Upon calling, they were saved. And when they were saved, just like Galatians 5 tells us, is that through faith we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? So listen. You don't need me to come lay my hands on you as someone who has a spirit and transfer the Holy Spirit from me to you. You don't need some kind of special feeling or moment to all of a sudden get the Spirit. That's not what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches is that when you hear and believe and call, what happens? You're given a deposit. Who is the deposit? Well, let's back it up. When you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal. What's the seal? The promised Holy Spirit. When did you get the promised Holy Spirit? When you believed. Whenever that happened. Right? So that could have happened sitting in a pew. Maybe you think that it happened when you made your way to an altar when you were a kid. If you believed in that pew before you got to the altar, you would have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we said here a couple weeks ago, nothing supernatural about stained wood and carpet. We thank God for the comfort of them, how pretty they look, but they're not necessary to salvation or spiritual life. And so here it is. These people believed, they, they heard, they called, they believed, they were saved, and they were given a deposit, which is the Holy Spirit. And I love this, right? You are marked in him with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. You know what the next word is? You know how verse 14 begins? Who's the deposit? What's that next word? Guarantee. You ever get skeptical of guarantees? You know, kind of like, whatever. Somebody might guarantee you, oh, I guarantee this used car will run you for the next 10 years of your life. It's perfect. We've went through every part of it, and it's as good as it could be. And you kind of, uh-huh. Yeah, how can you guarantee me that? Well, I guarantee if you eat this way and if you do this exercise, you'll live a long and healthy, happy life. I guarantee it. Is that true? There's no guarantee, right? A gentleman I coached with here this past uh, week, Thursday, pastor of First Baptist Church in Wildwood, Missouri, massive heart attack and died. Good man, healthy man. Guarantee you'll live to 80 or 90? No. And so sometimes we're skeptical of guarantees. Sometimes we're skeptical of having to give a deposit because we feel like we're going to get taken. Right? Sometimes people that rent their homes do this sort of thing. They ask for the first month's rent and the last month's rent, right? Because they don't want to get taken. They're not sure that maybe your check's in clear. So they want a, a big fat deposit there just in case you and I bail on them. What God's word says is he has given you a deposit. And that deposit is his Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit works in us, guaranteeing us of things that are yet to come. 
And so that's not my manipulation of a good teacher or speaker. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer. Somebody that's been made alive, spiritually speaking, who's come to life, light switches turned on, they've been shaken awake, they've received Jesus Christ. This person has the Spirit living in them. Does God say you're going to feel like it? There may be times where you feel the Spirit, but there's probably more times than not where you don't. Now this is one of those things that makes me skeptical. You know I'm a realist. That doesn't make me an eternal optimist or pessimist. I just tend to try to live in what's real. So sometimes what I wonder is when I see a person going crazy on a Sunday morning, moved with emotion, why don't I ever see that person on a random Tuesday walking down the sidewalk move the same way? Does God just show up on Sundays when the rhythm's good and the music's loud and everybody's into it? He can but I just wonder, why doesn't it ever happen outside of that? I've never, ever seen it. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I'm just telling you my story. It makes me skeptical. Because sometimes that's feeling-based. It's feeling-motivated. There are times at camp when we've got students who come to an altar and they're just praying and they're crying. And they move to tears and they come and they meet at that altar and they're like, what are you praying? What's on your heart? What's going on? I don't know. Is there something in your life you need to talk about? No. Something you feel like you need to pray through? No. What are you crying about? I don't know. Well, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> I don't know how to pray for you. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't speak through emotions. God does. God's an emotional being. You know, you're made in the image of God, and so you've got His will. You've got volition. You've got the freedom to make choices just like God did. God's not a dramatic emotional God. But he has emotions. It's all throughout the Bible. And we've been made in that same image. We'll hit that in just a minute. But I love the fact that the Holy Spirit is a promised, guaranteeing me that God's at work in me. And there are times where I see it, when I look back at who I once was and all the doubts and fears and worries and insecurities that I had and I see who I am now. That's not because I wised up or got smarter. I'm still the guy in the crowd apart from the hope of God who would rather back away in a corner and just not be seen or known. That's my personality. But I stand here in front of you today bold and confident and assured because my hope is the deposit of Christ in me through His Spirit guaranteeing me of things that are yet to come. And so I share things with you that are true not because I say so but because that's the deposit of God's Spirit. That's the promise that he gives to all who believe. And so that's the same process in Romans that we talked about. Right? God's got to send somebody to preach, and those who preach, among those who preach, some will hear, and some upon hearing will believe, and some upon believing will call. Whoever calls will be saved. It's, it's the exact thing Paul reminded them of. This is how you were brought to life. You were a spiritual zombie, chapter 2 begins, but back in chapter 1, he outlines right there how it is that they came to life. So it requires us to wake up by faith in God's grace. And the third and last here this morning, to be spiritually alive, it's going to allow us then to live out what we've been designed to do. And the one thing you can't do if you're dead is live. 
and I'm talking spiritually, where we can walk around the world and we can start businesses and we can do all kinds of general good. We can live under God's general grace, which goes to all people, sunshines on all, rains on all. But we can never live out our created, designed purpose apart from being made alive spiritually. So remember from where you've come, we were all dead men walking. Remember how God has woken you up, and in waking you up, He's put His Spirit in you. And He's put His Spirit in you and gifted you, gifted me, so that we might live out what it is that He has in mind for us to do. And so we can either follow the ways of the world as spiritual zombies or the ways of our adversary or our own selfish cravings, or as we're made alive, we can follow our created purpose. And so in verse 10, he says this, We are God's handiwork. God started this whole thing. And so your DNA is not an accident. And how you've been stranded together is intentional. I had a young man ask me here this past week about his sister. So she has different uh, dad than he has. And, and dad and mom didn't plan for her and didn't want her. And when she came around, they, they didn't want anything to do with her. And he said, so is my sister a mistake? It was like, you just slammed the brakes on. You know, it's like, we're, this lesson's going a different direction. No, she's not a mistake. She may not have been wanted or loved or desired by her earthly parents, but she was known by God before she was ever created. And she was knit together to be an image bearer, to walk this planet, to know that God loves her, and to be somebody who lives in that love. They've been forgiven, received Jesus, and to make much of him, enjoy his blessing. She's as much wanted on this planet as a person who plays hundreds of thousands of dollars just hoping against hope that they can have a child. Just as wanted, just as necessary, just as needed. And I wish she was there. I wanted to talk to her. But maybe he took that something home to her. But we are God's design. We are God's handiwork. However you and I got here. But we may look at it and say, oh, that was untimely. Or that maybe not have been the way God intended. But no one is here by mistake or accident. No one's here before their time or after. We are God's handiwork. We are created in Christ Jesus. This made alive to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, God's got a design in mind for every one of us. And in general ways, we could talk through all of the ways that we love one another in the New Testament. 58 plus ways that we're to one another, one another. And that's every day. I don't know what God wants me to do today. Pray for somebody. Serve somebody. Love somebody. Bear somebody's burdens. Show compassion to somebody. Be generous to somebody in need. Help those who can't help themselves. Right? Those are all, we can do that all day, any day. And that's already outlined. And that could be at the top of the schedule of my to-do list every day. But then there's also these personal problems and impressions that God's Spirit gives us that's, that's yours and it's mine. What God's leading you to do something He's not leading me to do. He's opening a door for you and He's not open for me. And vice versa. And so we walk through those doors. Right, praying all the while, God, I'm trying to fulfill what you've created me to do. 
And I've submitted my life into your hands, and whatever you want to do with it, do it. I pray that all the time. God, if you want to shift me, you shift me anywhere. I'm not defined by the title of pastor, teacher, coach, Granite Sidian, and I love all of that. But my primary identity is in Jesus Christ, and I want to, I don't want to go anywhere. Don't misunderstand me. But if he says, all right, buddy, let's go, let's do this little thing differently, okay, I'm all in. One of Moses has said, God, don't send me ahead if you're not going. I don't want to go without you, but I also don't want to stay here if you're going ahead and ask me to go with you. And that's kind of a, my heartbeat there as well. And so however God opens doors, that's, that's the way we want to walk. And that's, well, that's how I would encourage you to walk. Wherever that takes you, whatever that leads you into, if God's opening the door, walk through it and go with him. And we're not going to fight you. We're going to be in your corner and we're going to pray for you. We want to be a part of those sorts of things because you've been created, you've been designed, fashioned by God to do good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. And so why do we sometimes not do the good works? I think there's a few different reasons, but one reason I really just want to highlight today, and this has been on my mind here, one is, one is called feelings. You ever have feelings that work against you doing what you've been created to do? For example, God says, forgive. And you say, and I say what? Ain't no way. I've been down that road. I've been hurt that way too many times. Every time I reach my hand out, it's like they just sucker me. They just pull it right back. Got you again, didn't I? And I've tried to be loving and kind and do the right thing, and you just keep hurting me. So I'm done with you. You ever felt that way towards somebody? Yeah. What did I just say? Have you ever felt that way towards somebody? Sometimes our feelings become the things that drive us. I've been that person. What about when God says, hey, there's a need, be generous. I put stuff in your hands, give it away. Oh, no, no, no. Or give it away sparsely. It's kind of how my response, that's what you said, right, Lord? Hold tightly with the left, open a little on the right. No, do you think I can't open the storehouse of heaven and pour out what you need because I'm asking you to do something? you think I can't bless you? I feel like if I give this away, then I'm not going to have enough to meet my own needs or to do what I want to do. What did I just say? I feel. I feel. Lots of times things that work against us are those things that God has given us, which are things like feelings. God's Word says love. But sometimes I'd rather withhold. God's love says worship Him, but there's sometimes where I'd rather worship me or worship things that are on this planet. His Word says pray. But sometimes I feel like I'm the better answer. God, I don't need your help on this one because I've, I, I've got the answer. I can figure this out on my, on my own. God's Word says show compassion. But my heart sometimes says I'm just going to get taken. So it's, it's probably better stewardship not to even give, right, God? Because if I show kindness, they're just going to squander it anyway. God's Word says lead, and I say I'd rather follow. God's Word says listen, and I say no, hear, hear me. 
Like sometimes I just feel specific ways and my feelings can get me out from under what it is that I've been designed to do. So sometimes I just don't feel like it. I want to share with you a quote and then we're going to go to chapter one here real quick as we wrap this up. If you heard of a lady by the name of Lisa Turkhurst? I've heard this quote many years. I don't know if it's hers, but this is kind of where I tracked it down to. One of the books she wrote, Feelings are indicators, but not dictators. Feelings are indicators, but not dictators. What's that mean? It means my feeling may be true. It may indicate that there's something going on in my life that I need to pay attention to. But what's a dictator do? A dictator rules. He's in charge or she's in charge. It's authority. I'm over. It's me. Man, oh man. When my feelings are my dictators, I make a mess of my world. Don't you? Because now I'm reacting based on what I feel rather than what? What I know. And that always leads to me to have an apologize to somebody. And just spew out of the mouth or just tone, sarcasm, rude, withholding. Because my feelings have become what's governing me rather than just indicating that there may be a heart issue that needs my attention. She says feelings are indicators, not dictators. They can indicate where your heart is in the moment, but that doesn't mean they have the right to dictate your behavior or boss you around. You are more than the sum total of your feelings, and you are perfectly capable of that little gift called self-control. You know what gives us confidence to do what God has created us to do? It's not what we feel. It's what we know. And sometimes I've said this a ton because I need to say it to myself. Sometimes we just got to know some things. And so Paul said those who are alive, they have confidence. And they have confidence because of what they know. And so let's look at what Paul prays for people to know. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you may, what? Know him better. Paul didn't pray for them to feel close to God. He prayed that they would know some things. And Jeremiah said it as well. Our heart is deceitful. Like when we follow our heart, Man, it can get us to believe things or to twist things into things that just aren't true. Paul didn't pray, I feel you close. I pray that you feel close to God. I pray that you may know Him better. Feelings are coming. Hang on. They're just not the engine that should be driving the car. I pray that you know Him better. I also pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may what? Know the hope. I pray that you know God better and I pray that you know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And I pray that you also know, this is just furthering, his what? Incomparably great what? Power for those who believe. 
And that verse goes on to talk about that's the same power that brought Jesus from the dead. You know where that power lives? That's right. He lives in each one of us. That's the same power that's alive in you that's alive in me. How does that affect your feelings? How does it make you feel to know that the God who saw you as a dead man walking said, I love you too much to leave you there. And because I'm rich in grace and mercy, I'm going to provide a way for you to be made alive. You can either die apart from me forever because of your sin, or I can restore you. Doesn't that make you feel good? What drives your feelings? What you know. It doesn't make you feel good to know that you don't have to earn grace. It's a gift. If I could earn it, I'd brag about it. You know how good I was this week? Better than you. That's why God loves me and hates you. It's a gift. And it's a gift all day, every day. And so that makes me want to worship and be thankful every day. That makes me feel what? Good. It makes me feel joy. Isn't it good to know that life here is not just to wander around and figure out something to do until you die? It's good to know that the same Father who has awakened me has told me that before I ever took a breath, He created me to do good works. And He's fashioned me to live in that world, His purposes. That wakes me up every morning. Today is a God day, and I've got God opportunity all in front of me. Lord, help me to see it. Help me to be sensitive to your leading, to the prodding of your spirit. Help me to see the needs of people around me. Help me to not live so overcommitted that I don't have time for my neighbor or for a conversation. When you've got purpose in your life, it makes life worth living. You know what gives you that purpose? Because you know some things. What brings tears when you sing songs that are true? It's because truth is now the driver of your feelings. What makes you want to clap your hands or dance in a circle or say hallelujah or amen or crank the volume up or play that song over again or underline that scripture? What makes you want to text somebody or call them or send them an email and say, this is what I learned today and isn't this amazing? It's because truth has now been driving your feelings. Feelings are awesome. They're just not to be the dictator. What I know is the thing that should be driving me. A good question to ask somebody is, how do you feel? A better question to ask somebody is, what do you know? What do you know about the Lord today? What do you know about His goodness? What do you know of His grace? What do you know of that kindness? On and on we could go this morning. And so God has created us to be awakened. And if you've not been woke up, I pray that His Spirit will do that thing for you. That is to help you see that you need Him. And I pray your response will be one of faith. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know I need you. And I ask you to save me from my sin. Be my Lord, my Savior. You pray something like that from your heart to the Lord. His promise is if you call out to me, I'm going to save you. And I'm going to do everything I can pursuing you to wake you up. But maybe you're already awake this morning. Then are we living in light of these truths? 
Are we living to know God better? God's put a deposit in you called His Spirit so that you could know Him. Are we living in light of the hope that we have? Hope today and the hope of our future inheritance. Are we living in that knowledge? Are we living in that kind of knowledge of His great power that's at work in us, designed to work through us? Man, don't ever wake up any day and underestimate what God can do through you. See the day through the lens of an all-powerful God who's created you to do His good work.